Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Look Ahead Podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by HII. HII is one of the largest artificial intelligence and machine learning federal contractors to the U.S. government. HII delivering the advantage. Later in the program, Chris Cervello, the co-host of our Cavus Ships podcast, on the takeaways from this year's Surface Navy Association conference and trade show last week. But first, joining us is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, welcome back to the program and hope you had a great holiday weekend. I did, but you know, they're they're always starting your work on them anyway. So that's life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, there's there's always an opportunity, always an opportunity to work. Um, uh, Byron, uh, you know, in uh, another uh, great uh, series of notes over the last week, uh, and and certainly your look ahead uh, note, uh, and you have a little bit of frustration directed toward Congress. I don't think you'd be the only person. Uh, you know, we heard from Michael Herson on uh, the Washington Roundtable on Friday. You know that we've got an agreed top line number. There's an overall deal, both on the defense side and on the um, uh, the discretionary government wide side. And yet, it's not you know it's not going to be until March that we have a deal. We need another temporary continuing resolution. And your response to this is, "Come on, man! Uh, yeah. You know, walk us through your frustration." Well, yeah, Bago. Look, obviously not the only one who's frustrated with Congress, but. Since you did your Monday, uh, your Friday broadcast, Congress released the bill text for the continuing resolution uh, that the Senate and the House should take up this coming week. Um, you know, not too surprisingly, although now we have fixed dates, <clears throat> the first four appropriations bills that were to expire on January 19th, the new CR would take those to March 1st. And then the other eight, <clears throat> including the DOD budget, they were to expire on February 2nd, they get taken to March 8th. You know, I think the problem with some of this is, well, first, you know, this idea that it gives Congress more time to write these bills. And come on, you know, you've had these bills, you know, in one form or another, really, since March. Um, you know, you have a top line agreement. But by pushing these further and further out to the right into March, you're now starting to collide with, with the broader political dynamic that's going to play out in the United States. And I think the most important thing is, is how this affects um, Congress's willing to actually you know, tie this all up in March. The most important thing to me is the primary schedule. <clears throat> and, you know, this is what I wrote about. If you look at the the you know the the subsequent primaries after the Iowa caucus that took place on on March fifteenth, you get New Hampshire you know but but the really big um, flow comes in early March um, I think March fifth is Super Tuesday. The point is you know conceivably in and around that time period, um, the the uh, candidate Trump could have enough. Uh, delegates amass that he can be the de facto uh, GOP nominee. And, you know, what he says about Congress and discretionary, non-defense discretionary spending, I think I'll weigh more on how Congress behaves. You're also going to have President Biden's State of the Union address on March 7th. So that's another part that could be uh, possibly a combustible element. So, as much as we yet again may have avoided a, a shutdown, I mean, look, I think even if there's a temporary shutdown over the weekend, it's just irrelevant. I, I still, in my heart of hearts, I cannot imagine that Congress is going to skip a pay date for the U.S. military. 
and and frankly for the rest of the civil service. But uh, I think you know more and more that's going to push this whole drama over appropriations into April. And then the real question is going to be: Will Congress defuse? the fiscal responsibility act that mandates you know by april 30th if you don't have these bills enacted there's going to be a cut to the defense budget um, as well as the non-defense budgets too but you know you're going to see it at 99 percent of the fy 23 level and and that is going to create a lot more problems than i think people are are letting on to right now so there there's this Side to me, where I think you know that maybe that may be the game plan all along here. You know, if for at least a minority of GOP members in the House, that you know this is how they're going to get um, discretionary spending cut is to just slow roll this to you know somewhere beyond April thirtieth, and then those those cuts uh, get triggered. Now, is that what the majority wants? No, you know, but there's some pretty interesting dynamics going on in Congress, and it's just a risk that people cannot ignore. Um, you know, as, as our mutual friend Todd Harrison of uh, the American Enterprise Institute uh, is fond of pointing out, right, hostages only matter if you value the hostages or hostage taking succeeds if you value the hostage. If you don't really value the hostage, eh, it's, it's, uh, it, can, it can end badly. Um, we've got uh, companies that are going to start reporting earnings uh, next week. Uh, outlay numbers are out. Give us your sense. What are your expectations from the group uh, when they report? Yeah, we heard but, a little bit about this from Ron on, on yesterday's program. Well, the monthly treasury statement came out last week. You know, that rounded out December. You can look at outlay numbers, you know, for both investment, which is the summer procurement and research development test evaluation, and operations and maintenance, you know, they were up eight to nine percent in the fourth quarter, the ca of calendar twenty twenty three. So, I, I that alone should be a pretty good backdrop to the sales guidance that companies had been providing. There's not a perfect correlation with growth rates, but you know, something in the upper single digits would suggest that, you know, DoD kept the uh, the the obligations flowing in the fourth quarter and you know obviously there are more to these companies than just what they do for the dod there's international work there's commercial aerospace work there's civil work um but you know that would give me some confidence that you're going to have a decent earnings reporting season for the majority of companies now there's still going to be issues um i, I still think the workforce issues matter um you know, we've probably gotten over the steepest part of the hill, but as was discussed last week at Surface Navy Association, you know, the shortfalls that Fincantieri is seeing in their yards in Wisconsin, the work on the Constellation class, I don't think that's an isolated problem in the sector. I still think you're going to see, be seeing supply chain and supply network constraints that contractors have to work through. So, you know, what they guide to 2024 I still don't think consensus expectations are out of line. I think the bigger questions are going to be, you know, how are people going to frame the uncertainty over the budget? And what does that mean for their 25 and beyond growth rates? Um, and, and that'll be kind of, I think, the bigger question that that's going to land in the laps in these earnings reports. But and, and of course, I think the share of buybacks are going to just they'll continue um, You know, you had big commitments by both Raytheon or RTX and Lockheed Martin um but but you know that's just what these companies are going to do with their free cash flow um let me uh ask you uh about 
uh, munitions numbers, right? Uh, sure. And and you know you kind of have focused a little bit on on tomahawks. Uh, the Pentagon, when the first uh, round of strikes uh, on the Houthis uh, were announced, disclosed that it was surface ships as well as USS Florida uh, that shot something like eighty tomahawks or so at targets. There were also aircraft involved, and obviously RAF aircraft, uh, U.S. Uh, Navy aircraft involved from uh, you know carrier air power. Uh, go Navy, uh, as well as uh, ground-based air power uh, with uh, uh, typhoons flying out of Akrotiri on a very, very long round trip uh, a voyage there of some 3,000 some odd miles. Um, walk us through whether we're buying munitions fast enough. Yeah, it's just another demand signal, Vago, that's coming out that, uh, you know, I, 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 well, look, in this latest instance, let's just say there have been 85 um, uh, tomahawks expended. You know, that's more than some of the strikes that were conducted against Syria in 2018 and 2017, uh, even even uh, 2014. There were 47 that were expended. So, you know, and this is really maybe in a funny way just starting. We don't know where this is going to end. Um, but if you looked at the FY24 budget submission, um, you know, the numbers are still pretty, pretty stark. Now, this is new Tomahawk, so it's not the rebuild numbers, but, you know, there really wasn't any money uh, in, in FY24. What Congress does with that, we shall see. Um, there could be money chopped over if we do get these supplementals, which still looks very questionable at this point in time. But, you know, the profile was like 36 um, in FY25, ramping to 105 in FY28. Now, I don't, I don't know what Raytheon's build rate is for Tomahawks, um, but I do believe, you know, there are some supply chain constraints uh, to even re reach those numbers. And just go back and look at, you know, how many of these we were buying, you know, in 20, in 2014, two, well, there were 206, 215 in, in 2015, 243 in 2011, 417 were appropriated. So, um, you know, we've been at these much higher production rate levels. It's still, this is a new demand signal, right? I mean, when that budget was crafted last last year for the FY24 POM, no one no one had a Houthi um, contingency probably in their, in their planning. And so um, it's just another demand signal. And it kind of raises a question about, well, what are you going to do to get to these numbers? We have probably still a pretty large magazine of tomahawks to draw on, um, but you know some of those are old. They've got to be, you know, reconditioned and, and updated. Um, make sure that they're safe to operate. But the point is, um, the demand here is still far outstripping the supply, and I just think this Houthi contingency is yet another of the indications of the stresses are going to be placed on the U.S. industrial base and frankly the European industrial base too. I have not seen the figures on what um, what the U.K. or, or France expended but you know if, if we got a problem you know you could probably multiply the the European problem by some x factor uh, that's going to be significant in, in filling their magazines out too. And how many, uh, just uh, to let the audience know, right, roughly how many Tomahawks are in inventory and how many have we expended roughly? I don't know. I mean, and obviously, you know, the exact number has and should be classified, um, you know, a rough order of magnitude. And I'm just going to pull numbers off the tip of my tongue. Um, 
I think we had, there were something like 8,000 that had been contracted for. Um, if I look at the history of U.S. conflicts, um, we have expended, including uh, Yemen, you know, on the 12th of, of January, about 23, 2400 of those. Those are just the, the sea launched uh, tomahawks. Um, but then, of course, you get into, well, what else has been used in training missions? You know, what what are that tranche? I'd, I'd really have to dig into a little bit further, Bago. But but again, you you know, a single number in and of its own right doesn't matter. It's really how do those numbers fit into the operational plans and contingencies that the department thinks about? You know, if you, you think about how many TLAMs might be needed in a China-Taiwan scenario, um, it it's going to probably uh, eat into, uh, you know, most, if not all of that inventory. Uh, it is uh, it is uh, fascinating uh, indeed. And it was uh, interesting. Um, I can't remember what the numbers were, but when Britain gave 100 uh, storm shadows uh, to uh, Ukraine, and I think France uh, did the same thing, uh, you know, there were those who pointed out that, you know, 100 some odd have been used and we still have about 800 or 600 in inventory, whatever uh, the specific numbers were that that slipped my mind. So I just wanted to give the audience sort of a sense of uh, proportion uh, on roughly uh, how many we, we may have in inventory. Um, let me ask you for your takeaways from uh, the Surface Navy Association uh, show last week. Um, important uh, venue uh, for the Royal Navy, uh, for the U.S. Navy to uh, message. You talked about the Constellation program running behind schedule. Industrial capacity was an issue. I've heard that the you know next budget uh, that uh, should uh, drop uh, in March, uh, to coincide with the president's State of the Union address, uh, roughly, uh, you know, has only one nuclear attack submarine in it, uh, which seems outrageous. You know, you're not sure if this is to fan uh, worries, uh, but certainly would suggest that we're not really that serious if we say that we want to try to, you know, go from 1.3 nuclear attack submarines a year to two, something we've been pushing toward. We're, we've spent about $5 billion on the submarine industrial base. Uh, and if you look at surface warship construction, we're still not moving very fast, in part because we don't have the facilities and we, we don't have the people and we may not have the right contracting vehicles. Uh, you know, what were some of your takeaways at the end of this? Because I found it to be a very frustrating show. And we're going to hear from Chris Cervello here in a minute. But I wanted yeah, to get I mean, your sense. Look, uh, there, there's a clear disconnect between, you know, what leadership is saying, what leadership is actually doing. Um, you know, the simple fact that, uh, you know, so, you know, Franchetti said, you know, we're, we're looking for stable, predictable signals to industry. And then, you know, <laughs> the, you you have these reports coming about yet again, you know, cuts and changes to really iconic and core programs <clears throat> that the Navy says they want and needs. And so, you know, there's there's just a disconnect there. And um, and may, maybe that stage or that forum could have been used to really, you know, I, I I didn't hear a whole lot that was different, at least from from her presentation, her her uh, speech. That here's a whole new path. They're really kind of ringing the alarm bell about you know here's this disconnect, and here's why we're doing some of these things. Um, she could have said this is all pre decisional, but these are the realities that we're facing with the budget that we've got. Um, and and I so. You know, I I think some I was not able to listen to a lot of the um, the individual presentations that were made, for example, by NAMC representatives on on some of the programs. 
Um, I was intrigued to see, you know, this is one of the reasons I go to these shows. Serco had exhibited a, um, a DARPA contract that they had won for basically an autonomous um, vessel that uh, is being built by Nichols Shipyard. And, you know, it's these kind of concepts, these ideas, Vago, I really think we're coming up to an inflection point where you're either going to, the Navy is going to try and do business as usual and, you know, continue to work with, with a, a flat top line and underlying costs that are going to increase and a, a desire for these larger platforms to, you know, what we're seeing going on in the world right now, which is multiple demand signals, a lot more strains on the fleet, um, the recruiting retention problem, you know, and, and the industrial problems about hiring workers in some of these plants, you're going to have to start doing something different. So is the Circa, you know, DARPA program, I think it was called Nomad, is that one potential solution? You know, a lot of people I talk to, I think we're very frustrated with what the Navy has been saying and doing and, and what Congress has been doing with autonomous ships as well, too. I get some of the concerns and issues here, but it, it seems like, you know, that's something that, uh, you know, you're, you're never going to reach your your fleet size goals, um, you know, with the resources you're likely to be given, you know, unless you start thinking very differently and, and embracing some of these technologies that might add capability, albeit with risk, you know, there's nothing nothing in anybody's portfolio that says, hey, here's a risk-free solution. Um, but but I, um, you know, and I, it's a separate subject, but I really took issue with maybe some of the, the way that right. uh, Chief of Naval Operations had characterized the 1930s and 1970s, but that's, that's, another, that's another discussion point. Well, yeah. Well, I was going to ask you that. We've got about two minutes left. Uh, give me a minute on that, and then we'll we'll do the look ahead. But uh, give us your sense on what Admiral Franchetti said that sort of – because I remember talking to you right after that, and you were – Well, I, I thought, look, annoyed by the, that. the idea that Navy leadership had it all figured out, and they started to make these major shifts and changes in fleet architecture in the 1930s – you know, you can look at the 1940 um, appropriations bill, you know, there was many battleships in that request as there were aircraft carriers. So yes, there were obviously some things that have been done, um, the fleet exercises, um, the, the problems that have been worked on in the Naval War College, you know, but you can't say that the Navy had this architecture all figured out uh, on, you know, December 6, 1941, they did not. And it really, there have been prior SNAs where Navy leadership had talked about the organization's ability to learn um, in places like Guadalcanal and Midway that that ultimately led to you know a, a victory over the Imperial Japanese Navy and and maybe that would have been a better a better message here that uh, that it wasn't leadership who all figured this out it it was people you know manning or operating these units and. There are a lot of anecdotes, you know, particularly in the submarine force about about how we started to figure these problems out and get at them. And you want to do that in peacetime, not not when people are shooting each other. And uh, give us uh, the uh, look ahead and what the audience should be paying attention to over the next five days, four days. Well, World Economic Forum is taking place in Davos um, Tuesday. You know, is kind of National Security Day. Uh, uh, you know, Zelensky is going to be there. The Chinese are going to be out in force too, which is going to be intriguing. So. 
And Jake Sullivan, National Security Advisor, is going to be speaking, uh, I think, midday New York or East Coast time on, on Tuesday. Um, there are a bunch of think tank events, you know, kind of following up on the Taiwanese election and what that may mean. Um, I know there's, a, a, I think, a classified briefing that Senate Foreign Relations Committee is going to receive on that outcome and what it may mean. Um, CSIS is doing something on uh, tactically responsive space on January 19th. Uh, Carnegie Endowment is doing something on the 16th on U.S. policy in Ukraine. And there, there are other events and hearings that really kind of talk to the broader state of the competition between the U.S. and China on technology. Um, obviously, that may not directly bear on defense contractors, but certainly is a, a critical indirect factor for people to think through. Byron, thanks very much. Have a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Thank you, Vago. And joining us now with his takeaways from SNA uh, last week is uh, none other than uh, the one and only Chris Cervello, the co-host of the Cabas Ships podcast uh, and uh, the man who is central uh, to uh, everything from uh, our editorial planning to our production. Chris, welcome back to the program. And it was great seeing you in Washington last week. Yeah, thanks, Fago. Great to see you and great to see a lot of your listeners. Uh, and it was terrific uh, having both you uh, and uh, Chris uh, aboard. Uh, Chris Cavus, uh, your co-host, and Chris did a terrific job, uh, you know, ending uh, SNA for the thoughtful panel discussion uh, uh, that Admiral uh, Gunn uh, convenes each year and, and this year also included. Uh, Ron O'Rourke uh, from the Congressional Research Service and Dr. Eric Labs from the Congressional Budget Office. And that's always a key, uh, key, key conversation. From your standpoint, Chris, what were some of the big takeaways from SNA uh, this year? You know, you heard from Byron, um, yeah. you know, a little while ago about the disconnect. You and Chris have been talking about that disconnect now uh, since the show has been on, right? W walk us through what you walked away with uh, after a couple of days here in Washington. So let me start with the positive and then I'll get to the areas where I think the, the Navy uh, need, needs to continue to work, uh, picking up on some of the things that Byron said. Positive. I, I felt energy from the Navy leadership that I haven't seen and felt in a, in a very long time. Um, kudos to SWO boss, uh, Vice Admiral Brendan McLean. He's been in the job a matter of days, um, but didn't hide behind that. Clearly, uh, if there was any upside from the Tommy Tuberville um, you know, nonsense. It was a, a lot of these naval leaders actually got a chance to do some thinking. Um, they didn't go from one job to another, um, you know, with with only a matter of days in between. Um, Brendan McLean was out in San Diego, spent a lot of time on the waterfront and put some thoughts into it and capitalized on what we're seeing out of the Red Sea to lay out some of the things that he wants to do. Now, thematically, not not a ton of change, uh, um, you know, and what he wants to do, he wants to continue to work readiness, wants to continue to work getting the right people and right jobs and, and focus on war fighting. But the energy that he had, I, I would say, um, was uh was you know remarkably uh, different than what we've seen over the last couple of years. I think you saw from the CNO a new CNO, maybe who hasn't had as much time to do uh, the thinking that some of the other leaders had. Um, you know, she rolled out her um, her guidance where she focused on war fighting. Um, there's still a lot more to come out, so we'll uh, we'll hold judgment until we uh, hear more and see more over the next couple uh, weeks and months. Um, on that disconnect, um, yeah, I, I think there is a disconnect between the Navy and, and industry. You know, for the last three or four SNAs, Navy has not really had a clear message. They've not really had a clear focus. So I think industry just kind of showed, um, you know, just 
came to SNA to hang out and, um, you know, build relationships and kind of talk to people one-on-one. I didn't see a ton of new technology. I didn't see a ton of new thinking. I mean, they were just kind of there. And I don't mean that to be pejorative, Bago. I mean, I think there's a lead follow here. And I think their thought was, hey, look, if you just want to hang out and celebrate the surface force, We'll, we'll do that. Now, I think for the next one, I, I think you'll absolutely see uh, lasers. I think you'll see more unmanned. Um, I think you'll see that response from industry that that um, will pick up on what uh, they heard from uh, from the Navy leadership. Um, so many of those uh, retired uh, flags who I have a lot of uh, respect and admiration for, each one of whom tried to change things while they were in office. I mean, one of the amazing things was how many of them were sort of highlighting how collectively that progress hasn't been made, right? They're, they're not calling anybody on it. You know, they're like, hey, these are old old habits, uh, old ways of doing business, and we're stuck in it. And even when we were trying to change things, we found it difficult uh, to, to, to change. Um, I mean, what what's it going to take to drive some of these changes, Chris? I mean, you know, you work this yeah. on the inside as well having spent 20 plus years in the Navy? I think, Fago, at this point, it's mm. going to take um, serious loss of life or material for the Navy to really be thrust into a position where it makes the changes that it's been talking about making for the last 10 years. And I don't say that lightly. Um, there, I've said on the show before, there was some hope that out of the catastrophe that was the Fitzgerald and McCain, those lives wouldn't have been lost in vain and that the Navy would really focus on readiness and, and uh, um, proficiency. And I think you saw some of that, but um, you, you've also seen where some of that has fallen by the wayside. Um, I, I think that it will take the Navy feeling that it is really threatened um, from a security standpoint, from a materiel standpoint before it finally gets on board and starts reading its own guidance. Um, you, you know, all of the words are out there. If you look at the last three CNOs, the last three NAVCs, the last three flow bosses, I could continue to go on. I mean, they, they've said all of the things that need to be said to your point about talking to the retired flags. Now, now they just need to follow their, their own guidance um, and, and actually, um, you know, carry through on it. I'll use one analogy before I go. I, I am a tortured Dallas Cowboys fan. Uh, and there's probably one or two tortured Dallas Cowboys fans that are our, our listeners. Over the weekend, the so-called you know best offense, best defense, best overall team uh, in the NFL um, really got its butt kicked by the um, you know number seven team uh, in the playoffs. And I think that it is a reminder. We look to sports um, as uh, as metaphors for, for life. It's a reminder that you you can call yourself the best, you can think you're the best, but if you don't do the work, if you don't actually carry out the things that you know make you the best. You're not actually the best in, in competition. And I certainly don't want to trivialize, you know, the Red Sea or any other action around the world and related to sports. But I think it's a really good reminder um, that it takes a lot more than calling yourself the best, the best to actually be the best. I'm not going to comment on your uh, poor choice of teams, but that's been a lifelong choice, obviously, that you've made. Uh, but I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm here all week. Uh, try, <laughs> try, try, try the chicken. Um but I, I will say that even great teams have a turn in the barrel, right? And and that's yeah. where it's the same as war fighting, where throughout history you've seen uh, forces, you know, and and uh, you know every once in a while, um, you know the the side that should have prevailed uh, didn't. 
Although there's also something to be said for, hey, if you put the meticulous work in, you won't be surprised uh, and, and you'll be uh, in, in better shape. Talk to us a little bit of some of the takeaways uh, really briefly. Um, you know, it was an amazing demonstration of uh, naval power, subsurface power, surface power, uh, naval aviation, allies and partners. Uh, those RAF guys really deserve a lot of credit because that was a long drag from Akrotiri all the way uh, to uh, Yemen and back. Uh, and the United States put a lot of firepower in and took out about 20 percent of the Houthi capability. We did a, a secondary strike. Uh, and I think that if they keep at it, we're going to keep going. Uh, you know, it's interesting what message the president sent the Iranians, which is, hey, I, I could take out their whole capability. And we can just keep going or or you can rein them in, maybe. Um, walk us through what some of the important lessons have been from, uh, you know, the attacks that Carney and other ships have been under, uh, because, you know, just about everybody has said it's been a great battle lab to prepare for the Indo-Pacific. Well, I, I mean, I think it has been a great battle lab to prepare for the Indo-Pacific, but it's also probably more importantly been a great battle lab to deal with the three hub, um, you, you know, the likelihood that we're going to continue to have a three hub uh, naval con uh, conflict area. So it, it is very likely that we're going to continue to see uh, problems, Indo-PACOM, that we're going to see problems in the Middle East and that we're going to have to uh, bolster our European allies. Um, from a, you know, lessons learned or, or, or key takeaways, I mean, th this is what the Navy, it's what the Joint Force, it's what the Combined Force with our partners and allies, it's what we do very well, right? We, we do practice this quite a bit. So not the least bit surprised that um, the entire team um, performed uh, really well. At least that, those were the initial um, you know, that was the initial feedback. Um, I, I do echo the concerns of, of Byron. I, I do worry that, I mean, we are shooting a lot of things. Um, and I, they're, they're, it's important to shoot the things that we're shooting at the times that we're shooting them, whether that's to defend shipping, whether it's to defend um, joint and combined forces, or whether it's to, uh, you know, inflict uh, damage on, on the enemy. Um, but I don't see a similarly aggressive plan to refurbish those magazines. Uh, and I think that if you're the Chinese, if you're Iran, if you're North Korea, if you're the Russians, I, I think you're feeling pretty good, even though your, you know, your partners and allies may have taken uh, some damage. You're watching uh, the other side just waste away uh, its magazine stocks, you know, from their perspective. And, and, and that bodes well for them uh, in the future. So. To me, the takeaway, continue to, you know, continue to do the things that we're doing to um, stay on the step and to, uh, you know, work with our partners. Uh, but the probably the biggest takeaway is, is we really need to start thinking about how we're going to replenish both uh, legacy weapon systems, but also quickly get to new weapon systems like lasers, like unmanned, um, you know, uh, other things that we maybe can't talk about on, on this podcast. But, you know, how do we quickly get to that so that uh, we don't find ourselves an extremist in the next two to five years? And, and also novel ways of using things. You know, one of our mutual friends there uh, helped uh, integrate the five-inch 54 gun into the Aegis combat system, uh, when at the time a lot of folks were like, yeah, hey, you're really never going to use that gun. And guess what? Because that kind of work was done in a sleepy corner of the Navy, uh, the Navy had the ability to use the five-inch 54 in this case uh, to shoot down uh, some of those uh, aerial and cruise missile uh, and unmanned uh, targets, right? I mean, so... The, you know, doing that hard work up forward uh, yields you a lot of benefits, I think, on the backside. And we've seen that the Chinese 
you know, are, are being very diligent in, in trying to figure out uh, how to undo uh, and undermine our capabilities. Chris, thanks very much. Uh, and you and Chris, uh, keep up the terrific uh, work. And uh, we'll have you back on again soon. Thanks so much. Thank you, Bhagat.